Hi, I'm Michelle Young. And I'm Sam Tracy. And you're listening to Season 2 of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project by students and alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an awesome organization working to end the war on drugs. Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun while we're at it. We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. As always, we'll start things off with the biggest drug news stories from the last week and a few important things to look forward to. Then it's our drug of the month, where I'll be giving an overview of some recent trends in the world of caffeine. Up next is a roundtable discussion with Emmett Reistroffer, a member of the Liquor and Medical Marijuana Licensing Authority in Englewood, Colorado, and Brandon Emmett of the Alaska Marijuana Control Board to talk about the social use of marijuana and how these two jurisdictions are approaching it in very different ways. And of course, we'll wrap it all up with our calls to action, because while learning about drugs is a lot of fun, none of that matters if we're not using that knowledge to make the world a better place. So thanks for joining us on episode 28 of This Week in Drugs. And now it's time for our weekly news and forecast, where we discuss the biggest news items in drugs and drug policy from the past week, and then give you a heads up on cool events or actions you can take part in in the coming weeks. Sam, do you want to start us off with our first headline? Sure thing. So last May, the Queen of England, uh, she called for a ban on quote-unquote legal highs as part of her annual address. And last week, the UK Parliament actually debated and then passed a bill doing exactly that. No. So, yeah, very unfortunate news, but it sailed right through, just like a lot of these crazy bands always do, unfortunately. And so it's set to take effect in April, uh, and it's called the Psychoactive Substances Bill. And what it does is prohibit any mind-altering substance from being sold or distributed. And it's got this incredibly loose definition of what a psychoactive substance is, which is pretty much anything that can change your state of mind. And... But the way it works is that it then makes exemptions for specific commonly used drugs like caffeine and nicotine and alcohol. Uh, But this is actually a really big deal because it's a shift from the default and the way things work in here in the United States and the UK previously and I think pretty much every country of the default of a, a drug automatically being legal and the government then needing to specifically ban it. And now they're implementing this new system where all drugs are, start off illegal and then the government must specifically allow them instead. And so this led to a lot of contention during the debate uh, with some members of parliament proposing amendments to whitelist certain drugs that either they or their constituents were users of or sellers of. Um, so some examples of this, there's one member of parliament that uh, tried to whitelist uh, nootropics, which are drugs that aim to improve mental functioning because one of her, her constituents ran a business selling them and she thought it wasn't a big deal. Um, another one, another MP uh, tried to whitelist uh, alkyl nitrates, which are commonly known as poppers, um, because he actually outed himself as a poppers user. Uh, but both of those amendments ended up failing. So now this this has passed and uh, 
that's it's the new uh, the new system in the UK. Yeah, this is absolutely devastating news. I really didn't think it would happen when we first discussed it um, being proposed a couple episodes back last season um, because it just seems so absurd. Like, how can you say everything that has a psychoactive effect on you as a human is now illegal? Like, there's so many things that are mind altering um, in ways that people don't consider like illegal (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, yeah now they're even talking there's a committee that's now talking about uh looking at nitrous oxide and whether that should be included because i think it was originally whitelisted because it has so many uh so many uses like common industrial or medical uses Mm -hmm. Uh yeah along with things like you know in cooking with like making your own whipped cream is kind of the common thing and uh but now they're talking about hey maybe we should ban this except for certain uses too and it's just getting really ridiculous yeah it just seems like it's such a step backwards whereas so much drug policy is progressing forwards towards more sensible policy these days um what were the arguments in favor of it i mean i understand that there's like a general like the children think of the children i mean i understand the gen- the, the larger prohibitionist concerns but how can they possibly think that um perpetuating or expanding this war on drugs that has been such a failure for the past decades could possibly lead to anything, uh, any yeah, different solution. I mean, it really doesn't make any sense or to outcome. me. Um, it, it is just one of those kind of feel-good legislations. Um, and there was actually one of, uh, there was a, a MP named uh, Paul Flynn from the Labor Party, uh, who actually, during the debate, even said, hey, let's look at Ireland, which apparently actually did enact a very similar ban in 2010, and it closed. It led to pretty much all the head shops in the uh, in the entire country being closed. Uh, the ones that were selling these sort of drugs. Um, but a recent survey still found that the number of teenagers who have used all of these compounds actually has risen from sixteen percent to twenty two percent since that ban. Oh wow! So it's not even effective in one increase. in one bit, and is kind of counterproductive essentially. And obviously, the, this type of broad legislation can lead to discriminatory enforcement also. Like, the broader and looser your laws are, the more um, leeway law enforcement has to decide who they're going to enforce it in, against and in what circumstances. So this is really, really unfortunate. We'll keep an eye out on as this develops. Um, and hopefully, a repeal law is coming down the pipe pretty soon. I would urge the UK government to consider it. <laughs> Um, So for our next story, this is actually a victory in the legislature, which is wonderful. Um, So back. So and it's concerning um, a Maryland bill here in the United States. So back in 2013, when Maryland decriminalized up to 10 grams of marijuana, meaning that uh, up to 10 grams would no longer be a crime to possess, but could still lead to a fine of $100 or more. Um, that law did not decriminalize the possession of marijuana paraphernalia. So that means anything uh, related to the use of par- of marijuana, including um, like rolling papers, bongs, pipes, and even up to including the baggie or um, container that the marijuana might be in. So um, this led to a lot of concerns by um, advocates, you know, um, who could see law enforcement potentially no longer uh, disproportionately arresting people for possession of mar- uh, people of color for possession of marijuana, but then going after them for the baggie that it's in, which is still a crime, right? Um, so last year, the legislature passed a new law that would fix this loophole. 
Uh, good for them. That was the last bill that I lobbied for on behalf of uh, the Marijuana Policy Project. Um, and it seemed like such a logical bill at the time because everybody pointed out the flaw of paraphernalia still being illegal and we thought it would just sail through. Um, this bill also addressed another concern of prohibitionists, which is that it made it a civil offense uh, to smoke in public. So you could be punished up to $500 for lighting up in public, which is something else that the anti- uh, decrim people had pointed out. So we were trying to fix these two mistakes at the same time. Um, and then oddly, the governor, who is a Republican in in the state versus um, a democratically controlled legislature, then vetoed the bill. And he relied on these flawed arguments by Scott Schellenberger, who I'm calling out by name because I despise him so much. Um, he's the state's attorney for Baltimore County. And he claimed that the bill would prevent police officers across the state from arresting people who were smoking publicly in their cars. Um, and so this is really confusing because Maryland, like most other states, already has a law on the book uh, banning... Uh, driving under the influence of any drugs, you know, like most people under know like DUIs for alcohol, but like most states also have DUIs for the influence of other drugs. And if a police officer spotted someone sparking up a bong in their car, um, they would obviously have probable cause to believe this person was then going to yeah, drive under the I influence. Think that, that would be public uh, use anyway, right? I mean, if you can see into a car's window, if you're. Mm-hmm. Right, but then the public the public use would be a civil offense. Uh, so mm-hmm. so Schellenberger's argument is that his cops, who apparently aren't that uh, knowledgeable about their own laws, um, would be confused about whether they can make an arrest on a civil offense or not, which, of course, you can't make an arrest on a civil offense, but you can uh, if someone is then going to dr- take off and drive um, after ha- taking a huge hit in their car. Um, so... Uh, The bill sponsor, Senator Bobby Zirkin, who's also the chairman of the powerful Senate Judiciary Committee and has been a longtime champion of marijuana policy reform in Maryland, um, outright called the governor a liar over this. Uh, He said that's not just that's not just an exaggeration or a misunderstanding. It's completely false, which I'm so glad he has the chutzpah to say. Um, And. Yeah, uh, the legislature just this past week was able to override the governor's veto. So congratulations, (laughs) Maryland. Actual decrim again. (laughs) This is awesome. And I mean, and it reminds me so much of the same situation in uh, New York where they've had decriminalization since I think the late 70s. But for years, the NYPD was still arresting people. Yeah, decades uh, where it was still arresting people because they'd have them to their pockets. And because that that law, the loophole was that it was only decriminalized, but not in in public view. And so they were using that same kind of loophole. And so if this loophole was uh, in order to make arrests. And so if this loophole actually uh, stayed open, uh, I could have seen that exact same thing happening. So serious props to all the the activists and the great people in the legislature who closed this loophole so quickly instead of leaving it open for I think New York still has theirs open so get on that New York <laughs> um the loophole is still mm-hmm. open but in New York City itself um the I think district mm-hmm. attorney um changed their policy that they would only be issuing oh, tickets mm-hmm. 
for possession of marijuana from now on, which actually last year when that new policy was implemented, a lot of people were confused and thought that New York had decriminalized possession of marijuana for the first time. And we had to remind everyone. Yeah, we had to remind everyone, no, it's already decriminalized um, across the state. And thank you for starting to enforce that, <laughs> finally. Yeah, it's just that the police are finally catching up with the law that passed 40 right. years ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah, so I mean, on the topic of marijuana, that brings us to our next story, because one of the, the very common argument for the prohibition of marijuana is that using even a small amount of it during your youth will lead to really long lasting negative impacts on on your intelligence. So lowering IQ, making you less productive. But there's two new studies that just came out that are casting really serious doubts on that claim. So one study, which was uh, followed over 2000 British teenagers for many, many years, uh, and the other study looked at differences between American identical twins when one used marijuana and the other did not. So this UK study, it concluded, and this is a quote, cannabis use by the age of 15 did not predict either lower teenage IQ scores or poor educational performance, end quote. And, but it did find that early tobacco use actually did lower academic performance, but that also did not lead to a decrease in IQ. So in a sense, tobacco use early on is, is worse than cannabis use. And then uh, researchers in this American twin study uh, concluded that their data, quote unquote, fails to support the implication by Meyer al. that marijuana exposure in adolescence causes neurocognitive decline. Um, and so this Meyer is that's in reference to a 2012 Duke University study uh, that's responsible for some of the trumped up fears about the effects of marijuana use on IQ. Because this has been something that's been a myth for for many, many years. Uh, But this was a recent study that seemed to confirm that. But it has been criticized in the same journal uh, by a lot of uh, the author's peers saying, uh, questioning their methodology. And now these two studies are, are casting serious doubts on their conclusion as well. And so isn't one of the major differences between the, the more recent studies and the, the, the older Duke study as well, like the frequency and quantity of use, um, like this one, the more recent studies looked at people who would use an average or like even regulars, regular users who are using a moderate amount of marijuana. And in Duke University study, they really um, focused on intense, uh, heavy, heavy use that was really unrealistic for, for average users. Um, yeah, yeah, it was like the top probably 5% of uh, users in terms of the heavy, how, how heavily uh, they were consumers. And so then this was then a conclusion that people kind of extrapolated to the rest of the population saying, hey, if you use any amount of marijuana, it's going to lower your IQ. And they were just saying, hey, if you're smoking, you know, an eighth a day that's probably going to be bad right. for you. And like, that's probably a good uh, good. Uh, baseline advice no matter how old yeah here on this week in drugs we do not endorse smoking an eighth a day (laughs) (laughs) um so but we should definitely take all of these studies um in in aggregate right i mean there's no definite answer as to yes or no like we're still studying this issue of course and yeah Yeah, that is the really important thing, too. I mean, as someone who's both a drug policy activist and now working in the marijuana industry, I always do want to be very careful not to say, oh, hey, here's one study that confirmed my biases and it's correct and everything else is wrong. Uh, We really do need to keep building up more and more studies like this so that we can actually, I mean, meta studies are the only things that really get a good look at this and so that we can replicate it and um, 
once we have more and more data, once more states legalize and we have more tax revenue going towards this kind of thing, then we'll actually be able to have a better understanding of how this impacts young people, old people, and everyone in between. So it would be great to uh, still, if you're young, don't recommend an eighth a day, or honestly, in my, in my personal opinion, if you're under 18, probably not the best idea to smoke at all. Wait till you're a bit older and uh, same thing for drinking. But if you are going to, don't think that it's inevitably going to be leading for your IQ to plummet. So you can still do good in school too. <laughs> Um, and so for our final story, I was really excited um, when Sarah Merrigan, who, for those who don't know, is our new engagement director, uh, when she sent this to us, um, I was really excited about it. But then now that I'm thinking about it, I'm not entirely sure it counts as drug policy news, but we can discuss this further. I thought it was just a really quirky, funny story. Um, <laughs> so 30, well, quirky and also potentially really important <laughs> and uh Concerning is the word I was looking for. But so 35 restaurants in China have been accused of illegally sprinkling powdered opium poppies on their food as seasoning and serving this to customers. Apparently, cases of cooks sprinkling ground poppy powder, which does contain low amounts of opiates such as morphine and codeine in a wide range of foods, including soup, seafood, noodles, dumplings, etc., is not that new of a phenomenon in China. Um, like there have been enforcement actions against this type of um, dosing in, in the past. So poppy powder, which is made from capsules and shells of the poppy um, rather than the seeds, do contain higher opiate content um, than poppy se seeds, which we commonly see on bagels and stuff. Um, and according to a 2014 report by a Chinese news agency, uh, poppy powder can be easily purchased these additives, the poppy powder, is commonly mixed with chili oil and other spices, so it makes it really difficult to detect in food without laboratory equipment. Um, the first of these cases was alerted to because someone, because of a failed drug test that someone had to take. Um, and I guess they traced it back to a restaurant he had eaten at recently. Um, and honestly, it's unclear based on reports we've been seeing so far whether this delivery method can even effectively get a customer addicted or deliver a noticeable buzz. So it's not so it's like the, I guess the theory is that if you put um, opium in the food, your customers are going to really, really like it and come back more. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but like unknowingly that why they like right. it so much. <laughs> um, mm. But yeah, I don't, I don't know if this is um, apparently like th this is not all that uncommon in China. Do you have any thoughts yeah. on this? I mean, this is the first that I had heard of it. Um, I mean, aside from us talking about this story a couple days ago, but I didn't realize that it was such a common practice in China. I mean, it seems I, I mean, I feel like it's completely a drug policy story just because for one thing, is it? Is it that these are legal that they're saying it can be easily purchased or just that it's very easy to find on the black market for $60? That's a kilo? what um, um, I mean. It was pretty clear that it was illegal to sprinkle the powder on mm -hmm. your food. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't I haven't looked into whether it's illegal to purchase th this poppy powder mm -hmm. or not. Yeah. But I mean, even if you were, say, you know, serving people alcoholic drinks without their knowledge and like putting alcohol in a very sugary drink and then the people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, that I would be get more completely of these. Like, this immoral. is so delicious. I mean, it's kind of the same yeah. thing in that maybe it is such a negligible amount that it actually isn't 
worth it for them to be spending this extra money to be trying to dose their customers. Um, but I mean, you know, giving people any sort of drug without their consent is obviously a terrible, terrible idea and very unethical, um, even if it's not as effective as you hope it is. Uh, so this is definitely something I feel that they should get in some sort of trouble for. Yeah. Um, I mean, sure the reason, exactly how much. The reason <laughs> it made me question whether it was a drug policy issue or a drug story. I mean, obviously it's a drug story, um, but whether it's a drug policy issue is because I don't know what like drug policies could be shifted to avoid this type of behavior. To me, it seems more a result of like overall lax or questionable food safety regulation in China where this isn't the first food safety scandal we've heard come out of um, that yeah. country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, maybe if we legalize opium food, then we could have people who right. want to opium food oh, go to opium know. food restaurant. That's true. And then the non-opium That's true. <laughs> That's very true, Sam Chasey. I had not been thinking outside the box. <laughs> So maybe we'll be able to legalize opium uh, cafes in China at some point in the in the future, and people will be able to make an educated decision about where yeah, to go. Yeah, speaking of <laughs> opium cafes, um, this is a, a fun time for me to remind everyone, in case you didn't know, the very, very first drug laws in America were uh, targeted against Chinese opium dens. And so... Um, as if we don't talk about this enough on the show, uh, the history of the drug war has always been racist. Um, so moving on now to our shorter headline section, which we've just recently renamed our quick hits. All right, perfect. So our first quick hit is that Arizona State Representative Jay Lawrence, who's a Republican, has withdrawn a bill that would have destroyed Arizona's medical marijuana program. So this bill would have taken uh, naturopaths and homeopaths off of the list of doctors who are allowed to recommend marijuana. And since they actually write about 90% of recommendations in the state, this would have effectively crippled the program. Uh, so thankfully, activists came out in force, made a lot of calls, were planning an action, and convinced him to drop his terrible bill. Thank you, activists, and thank you, Jay Lawrence, for seeing the wrong of your ways. <laughs> um, for our next story, another uh, state legislator doing the right thing, maybe, I don't know, questionably. Um, so Georgia state legislator, uh, Representative Alan Peek, who is also a Republican, has publicly admitted to breaking federal law. Um, so Representative Peek is the lead sponsor of the medical marijuana bill in his state, uh, which has not passed yet in any sort of comprehensive form. Um, but he's been fighting incredibly hard, um, also setting up a private fund uh, to help his constituents who need medical marijuana get to Colorado in order to receive treatment. Um, he has just recently admitted to smuggling that medical marijuana back into his home state in order to help epileptic children there who need it for treatment but currently can't access it because his colleagues won't um, you know, play along and help pass this life-saving medical marijuana program um, that he's been proposing. So that's uh, a pretty big admission on the part of an elected official. Yeah, go Alan Peake. Props to you for doing the right thing. In my yeah, <laughs> opinions differ. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so our final quick hit here is that uh, according to the Brewers Association, we actually now have more breweries operating in the United States than ever before. So as of December 1st, 2015, they counted a total of 4,144 breweries in the country. 
And according to historians, the previous record was set all the way back in 1873 when they had a total of 4,131. Uh, so we actually have 13 more breweries than we've ever had before. Uh, so this is some exciting times for uh, the American alcohol industry. And so now then moving down into our weekly forecast with some exciting stuff coming up. Uh, our first one is that this Thursday, January 28th, is the hearing for the owner and one employee of Kush Gods, which was a marijuana delivery service that was recently the subject of a sting by Washington, D.C. police, uh, which we actually reported on three weeks ago on episode 25. So the company claims that it gives out marijuana for quote-unquote donations, uh, but in other interviews they've also said the donations are mandatory and that they are set at certain levels, uh, making it pretty clear that this is just a thinly veiled business. Uh, so this is going to be a really important test case for the D.C. marijuana legalization law. So anyone who's interested in seeing how it plays out, if you're in D.C., I believe it would be an open hearing, so you can go check that out, or also just keep a close eye on the news afterwards, because this is something that we'll definitely be uh, following up on. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I'm worried that this might set a bad precedent, because they were very, very blatantly violative <laughs> of... Mm -hmm. um, at least the spirit of the law in D.C. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so for this next forecast, um, the International Center for Science and Drug Policy is conducting an online survey uh, wanting to know what your top five priorities in drug policy are, uh, whether that's increasing harm reduction, supporting evidence-based treatment for addiction, um, all the way to creating new legal sources of income to battle the illegal drug trade. Um, they list... Uh, like about 10 suggested drug policy priorities for the international community that we could be focusing on and also welcome any suggestions if your top five priorities do not appear on that list. Um, and we strongly encourage you to participate in the survey as uh, someone who does care about drug policy. The ICSDP is a global network of scientists and academics. And in the lead up to April's UNGAS session, they have published an open letter calling on governments to better align the UN's drug policy goals with reality-based community concerns. So the survey is to help them collect information about what those community concerns are. Um, so if you're looking to have a small voice in this year's UN special session, if you, even if you can't make it to New York in April, which SSDP will help you get there if you do want to go, um, please take the survey um, and we'll link to that and the open letter both on our webpage and Facebook. Awesome. So that's it for our weekly news and forecast, along with our quick hits today. So as always, there's so much going on. Uh, we try to keep tabs on it, but it's pretty much impossible to. So if you see any awesome stories that you think are worth covering, feel free to shoot them our way. Uh, we'd also love any of your thoughts and comments on our stories, too. So send those our way as well. Uh, and you can do that by sending us a message on Facebook or Twitter. And you can also email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. <laughs> And now it's time for the drug of the month, where we dive into the details about a different drug each month. This week, we're finishing up our focus on caffeine with our fourth installment on some recent news and trends surrounding the most popular psychoactive drug on the planet. Caffeine has been a part of human culture for millennia coming from a variety of sources like coffee, tea, guarana, cola, and over 60 other plants. Although it was used casually since prehistory, the first big boom in caffeine's popularity occurred during the 16 and 1700s, which coincided with the Industrial Revolution, with many historians crediting artificial light and caffeine as two of the major factors allowing humans to function in this new era, 
where work was based around time on a clock, rather than the rising and setting of the sun that set the limits on when farmers could work. We seem to be in the midst of a new spike of caffeine usage over the past few decades, which seems to coincide well with the modern era where people are expected to work long hours at service counters or in front of computer screens, both of which can be easier when under the influence of caffeine. According to the Food and Drug Administration, 90% of people worldwide use caffeine in some form, and there are some global trends in the types of caffeine used throughout the world. As I said last week, tea is more popular in China, the UK, and former British colonies, while coffee is more popular in continental Europe and the Americas. But method of ingestion aside, there are also some stark differences in the quantities of caffeine consumed in different countries. According to the BBC, Finland takes the crown for the country with the highest caffeine consumption, with the average adult downing 400 milligrams each day, which is roughly equivalent to four or five cups of typical coffee, more than double the amount consumed by the average American. Finland is then followed by Norway, Iceland, Denmark, the Netherlands, Sweden, Switzerland, Belgium, and Canada. Noticing a bit of a trend here? Along with sharing some common culture, these countries all share a similarly frigid environment, with some of them far north enough that daylight is incredibly short for certain parts of the year. So it's likely that these countries' inhabitants are using caffeine to stay more alert when it's dark out, and possibly using coffee or other hot caffeinated drinks to stay warm as well. In the United States, there have been some big changes in caffeine intake in recent years. The magazine Pediatrics released a study on the type of caffeine ingested by young people, and from 2000 to 2010, 74% of people under 22 consumed at least some caffeine. In that same period, soda went from comprising 62% of youth caffeine intake to only 38%, while coffee jumped from 10% to 24%. So young Americans are drinking less soda but much more coffee, which could possibly be due to health and diet concerns, but could also just be a cultural phenomenon with the rise of Starbucks and other trendy coffee shops becoming the new hangout and status symbols for teens and young adults. While traditional products like coffee are rising in popularity, there have also been a lot of new caffeinated items coming to market in recent years. Wrigley's launched a line of caffeinated gum in 2013 called Alert, with each stick containing 40 milligrams of the drug. However, shortly after its debut, the company actually halted production of the gum after the FDA voiced concerns, and it has not yet returned to store shelves, though there are other caffeinated gums out there. Another product that took the nation by storm, becoming wildly popular but then crashing nearly as fast, was alcoholic energy drinks loaded with caffeine and other stimulants. Four Loco was the most talked about brand, but there was also a large variety of other products with names such as Juice and Max. I remember seeing these all over the place in 2010 as they were very popular with college students who were looking to party late into the night, also pushing things to the edge to test their own limits or impress the people around them. But after a few high-profile incidents, and a massive drug scare in the media, the FDA issued warning letters to the four biggest manufacturers in November 2010, saying that the administration viewed the products as not being generally recognized as safe, which is the legal standard. Several states even went so far as to ban these beverages, which combined with the FDA warning, led Four Loco and others to reformulate their products, removing caffeine and no longer marketing it as an energy drink. However, these crackdowns on certain highly caffeinated products certainly hasn't stopped other companies from putting caffeine in all sorts of things. There's the steam caffeinated peanut butter, perky jerky, which is exactly what it sounds like, energy gummy bears, bang caffeinated ice cream, jelly belly extreme sports jelly beans, which have caffeine. And there's even an Indiegogo campaign going on right now for a new line of caffeinated toothpaste. As of this recording, it's raised over $15,000 towards its $42,000 goal. But the caffeine product that's gotten the most attention in the past year was barely a product at all, but merely pure caffeine powder. Many companies began marketing this online, with a five-pound bag running as little as $10 or $15. Dollars. 
Pure caffeine powder is ridiculously potent, and a single teaspoon can contain as much caffeine as 25 cups of coffee, making it very important to measure doses accurately. This extreme potency has led to the deaths of at least two people who did not, either didn't measure carefully enough or intentionally consumed large amounts without understanding the potency and risk. Due to these accidents, major retailers such as Amazon.com have stopped selling pure caffeine powder. Some are calling for a complete ban, but at this point it is still legal and possible to get on specialty websites. The FDA has taken a more cautious approach with caffeine powder than it did with Four Loco, simply issuing a consumer advisory in December 2015 to educate people on the facts and risks associated with these products. While it seems like pure caffeine powder is the most extreme form of intake possible, who knows what sort of trends we'll see in the future. So that wraps up our fourth and final installment of Caffeine as our drug of the month. Since next week is the fifth Sunday in January, we're going to have a special segment for our listeners, and we'll then be returning with a brand new drug of the month in February. And now it's time for our roundtable discussion, where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. For today's episode, we'll be discussing two different models for social cannabis use, with Emmett Reistroffer, a board member for the Englewood Liquor and Medical Marijuana Licensing Authority in Colorado, and Brandon Emmett of Alaska's Marijuana Control Board. Thank you both for coming on. So to start off, can you explain to us a little bit about what exactly marijuana social use means. I know that um, currently in almost every state that has legal cannabis, users are generally limited to using marijuana in their own homes or their friends' homes or under very limited circumstances in certain uh, parts of Colorado. They may be able to consume at a hotel or bar. Um, So do either one of you uh, want to kind of describe how social use fits between the space between that completely private, almost hidden use and, um, you know, the kind of public use, which a lot of people are fearful of, like people walking down the street, smoking joints. Um, yeah, sure. Really on the sidewalk. Yeah, I can. Uh, uh, take- <laughs> you can do one or the other. <laughs> go ahead and go first. OK. So, so as we, we all know, um, you know, marijuana is, is a, a, a very um, social good. Uh, most people choose to consume cannabis with uh, their friends and family, much the same way that people consume alcohol um, with, with friends and family. It's uh, considered a, a social drug. Um, and so in, uh, in Alaska and in other places I've visited, you know, the, the marijuana experience is, is always a, uh, you know, a very social experience. Um, where you start to get into the issue as far as policy regulation goes is how you define public and whether or not marijuana is uh, allowed to be consumed in public by either a state or local government. And so here in, in Alaska, we had defined uh, public as uh, anywhere where the, the general population um, or a significant number of persons has access. And places like bars have a consumption endorsement. So, so here in Alaska, you can't, you can't drink a beer on the street because that would be consuming in public. Mm-hmm. But although a place of business could be considered a public space, there's, there's cutouts for that. Um, on the 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 state um, alcohol control level, and so that's that's the, the debate 
that we had here in Alaska recently is these individuals who are operating um, unlicensed clubs, you know, um, using their constitutional right to assemble um, and providing a space where someone can go to consume cannabis and uh, having individuals on the state and local boards that, that disagreed with the ability for people to consume what they considered in public. Um, and so that has led us to our, our current discussion about creating licenses um, for that sort of consumption to take place. Um, Emmett, do you, do you have uh, some thoughts on that? Yeah, thanks, Brandon. And I find a lot of what you had to say very interesting because we have some similarities. Um, clubs have opened up in Colorado on license and unregulated. Some are better examples than others. There's clearly a need for this. Uh, I would like to refer back to Amendment 64, which I think had some really good intent. There's some language in it, um, but there's kind of a gap in the regulations that have come forward since then. Amendment 64 says consumption of marijuana um, is permitted, provided that it is not consumed openly and publicly or in any manner that endangers others. So the key words there being openly and publicly. Um, mm -hmm. I think most of us all agree um, that we don't want folks smoking at the bus stop or out on the sidewalk or anywhere where children could be present. Um, so these clubs are opening and I think, um, at least in Inglewood, it's been you know relatively welcomed and the club has been pretty diligent with trying to work with the city to uh, implement rules and to address uh, concerns with neighbors and that sort of thing. Um, so to me, Rochelle, you started this by asking what is social use, to me it is um, kind of that setting where we can create a supervised environment that is also safe and gives cannabis consumers a place to go so they're not left on the sidewalks or maybe um, in the hotel where they, they're not sure what the rules are. It says no smoking, but is that tobacco or marijuana or both mm -hmm. um, and that sort of thing. So social use can mean a lot of things, um, but I think this is kind of the next step forward post-legalization is what do we do about social use? Interesting. And, and so from what I gather, there's kind of two different models for social use and that being on-site consumption and kind of a bar situation in which you're, you're buying there and then consuming what you bought on premises and then more of the, the bring your own cannabis style club. Uh, so Emmett is um, the one in Englewood that's strictly bring your own or is that associated with a dispensary or is, is it possible to purchase on-site? Thank you, Sam. I think this highlights um, another major difference between Alaska and Colorado. And for you, Brandon, I think you're actually in a, a little bit of a better position than us because you're talking about this um, during your implementation phase. Colorado passed Amendment 64 in 2012, and it was the local cities and communities that started responding to the social use issue um, you know, a couple years later. It's now 2015 or 2016, excuse me. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are, it was in 2015 though, these discussions started. So in 2015 is when social use really became um, a term that we started using and having these discussions. In Inglewood, it is a bring your own cannabis. And I would love to talk about those, those models, those differences, because from a licensing standpoint, uh, I also handle liquor licensing in Inglewood. And 
I think there are benefits to having on-site consumption where we regulate it like a bar so that it can be sold and served to be consumed on-site at the same premises, mm -hmm. whereas now dispensaries cannot allow you to consume on-site. You have to buy your marijuana at a store and then drive down the street to the club and it's bring your own. And so there's pros and cons both ways and I think it's a good kind of good debate to have to consider uh, the pros and cons of each model. Mm -hmm. And so Brandon, then in Alaska, are, are what you're looking at, is that strictly uh, you can only consume what you bought there is bring your own allowed? Uh, and I'm, I'm curious if that's something that was, was that any kind of internal debate over whether to allow one or the other um, or if it was just pretty much going straight for uh, on-site consumption since you're already on the subject of dispensaries? So, so that's, that's a really good point. And so what, what Emmett had, had talked about um, where there's, there's a, a debate between the, the different models, that's how um, we on the Marijuana Control Board actually arrived at our current position is that uh, marijuana clubs and those individuals advocating for, for marijuana clubs um, became very popular in our uh, different sessions when we were taking public uh, comment and, and public testimony on the regulations. Uh, many, many people here um, want a place where they can consume. And, uh, you know, there's just there's so many situations where someone might not be able to actually consume cannabis at their home, so they, they need a place to go. And so these clubs started popping up because there was nothing in the regs about them. And so you can you write you know rules you can make laws to make things illegal but you don't write laws to make things legal so there was no there was nothing on the books that said anything about clubs and so these people started popping up with these unregulated clubs and uh, the 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 state um, <clears throat> sent some cease and desist letters to various unlicensed marijuana businesses a couple of the clubs being one of them. And so there was quite a lot of debate. And during the public testimony period, the most popular topic was the clubs and the outcry of people wanting clubs. And so that put us on the board in a position that like, okay, there's definitely a need for this. You know, we have to have a public comment driven um, regulations process. And so we needed to, to find a way to allow people to, to have on-site consumption, but have rules that surround it. Um, and something that was put forward by the staff on the Marijuana Control Board was originally a provision that was uh, Section 900, and it was marijuana clubs prohibited. Um, I, uh, I opposed that. I, I voted to strike that from the language, and um, <clears throat> I was outvoted. Mm -hmm. And then so asked for a, a, a review from the Department of Law um, uh, our chair of our board, Bruce Schulte, um, actually pushed it a little farther and said, okay, this, um, this shows that, that there is uh, quite an issue here. We need, a, we need a, a more thorough review. The Department of Law came back and said that the, because it was not specifically included in the initiative, that the Marijuana Control Board cannot regulate clubs. So we can't endorse them, but oh, we also could not ban them. Mm -hmm. And so we, we actually had to strike that marijuana clubs ban section from the regs. Mm -hmm. Then that put us right back in the same spot where hmm. now we've, we've got this gray area. And uh, so it, it basically um, it forced us to 
uh, recognized as a board that if we're going to regulate marijuana like alcohol, that we actually have to make a license type that allows for consumption much like a bar. So what you're going to see mm -hmm. is a marijuana retail license with an on-site consumption endorsement. Um, so you'll go to the retail facility, you'll purchase your cannabis there, you'll consume it there. Um, so basically like going into a pub. Um, these areas, so these, uh, these retail stores, they'll have to have their smoking areas separated um, by a secure door. Um, basically a, uh, a door in a room that just separates the, the consumption area from the retail area. Reason for that being, hello, um, if someone were wanted to purchase um, cannabis from the retail facility and then leave with it, they can, um, but they can't. They can't take the cannabis into the smoking area, open it, start using it, and and then leave with it. So it's buy it, consume it there, or buy it and leave with it. There's got to be exit packaging. Um, so we, we still got a little bit more hammering out to do, but the 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 basic regulation for that business model is set. And uh, you know, Alaska is is uh, if. If we uh, on the the industry seats uh, and, and those people who are activists in the states, if, if we get our way, um, you know, we'll have a booming marijuana tourism industry just like Amsterdam. So, I'm I'm pretty excited about it. So on a really wonky point, I think it's super interesting to see how divergent um, Alaska and Colorado's different implementation processes have been, considering um, the language of both ballot initiatives were essentially their same, the same at their core. Um, and both campaigns were the campaign to regulate marijuana like alcohol, both in Colorado and Alaska. Um, and I actually had the opportunity to work on both. So it's been really interesting to see how Alaska's government has interpreted this language um, differently from how Colorado's government has. And of course, you're facing different um, legal frameworks in your respective states. So that could be a reason why. But um, the other thing that that jumped out at me was that after all this, all these um, legal loopholes, Brandon, that you and your board had to jump through and kind of carve your way through um, to figure out this new how you could allow for some sort of some form of social use, despite the constraints that the law uh, put you in, we still haven't arrived at an entirely bar like uh, situation because in bars you're, you don't you're, you don't have to be physically separated from where you buy the product and of course like a bar uh, at a bar um, at least in most states that I've lived in you cannot buy the product and just walk out like you have to you have to consume it on site although I guess that depends on state to state um, so it is really interesting how you know despite the fact that both of these states already had definitions of what public use was um, for alcohol and public use being banned for alcohol, but having these public establishments where alcohol could still be used, we had to create this whole new framework for this other substance. Like even though the campaigns are regulate like alcohol, we couldn't actually use that existing framework um, and regulate cannabis like alcohol. Um, so I just want to point, point out those nuances. I, I, think, I, I, I think this is super fascinating. Um, <laughs> but jumping back to Emmett and Emmett, I know that you've worked on kind of two different in two different cities here in Colorado um, on the social use aspect. Um, so while you're 
uh, a licensing authority yourself in Englewood. Um, there was a social use um, ballot initiative that was in the signature collecting phase for a while um, in 2015. Um, and that would have been a strictly BYOC, bring your own cannabis um, model initiative. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, leaves us at the bring your own model in Colorado is state law. So you'll see the city campaigns and ordinances um, really limited to that. Uh, my understanding talking to some state officials is that um, the state licensing laws would have to change for us ever to get to the point where we could have true on-site consumption like a pub or a coffee shop. Um, so living with that in Inglewood, uh, we've been working on this ordinance um, and we've really pushed the pedal and kind of bypassed Denver. I'm kind of proud of that, but Denver's really where we need to get the work done. That's where the the city is. That's where the population center is in the state. Um, I assisted that campaign um, and really learned a lot about the issue at that time. And they did pull the measure from the ballot. I think you mentioned that. Um, and they switched gears into strictly lobbying the city, which I think was a really smart move. I'm not sure how voters would have responded to that issue being put on the ballot uh, without much time to campaign for it. And it was a school board election, which I don't think was necessarily good timing for a social use initiative. I think the folks in Denver will are, are remain committed to putting it back on the ballot if their lobbying efforts don't pay off. So we'll see where they go in Denver. We've learned a lot from their ballot language for the ordinance in Inglewood. Um, especially with regard to the smoking patios. That was a big element that I've been pushing for in Inglewood um, because basically with the Which Clean Indoor Air Act, is um, there is no smoking allowed indoors in Colorado except for a couple of very rare circumstances. And the social clubs have found a way to fit into those circumstances. Um, I don't necessarily think that's a good thing, and a lot of folks think that they're bypassing the intent of the law. Those circumstances, uh, I think, are set up so that way um, you can still allow smoking indoors if you are not open to the public and you have two or fewer employees. So that's going to limit the size of these establishments and how many employees they can have. That's such um, a so strange requirement, the employee thing. <laughs> it's very strange, and I, that's because the intent of the smoke-free law was to really ban smoking indoors everywhere. Um, Aren't there hookah bars in Colorado, though? Are they limited to having fewer than That's four a good point. Now, there were uh, certain or tobacco businesses. If there, there are more exceptions than just those. That's the one exception I mentioned with the two or fewer employees is what the social clubs are using. Now, tobacco establishments have another okay. exemption, um, which is based on the revenue that they make. If so much of the revenue is coming from the hookahs and the tobacco, then they are still allowed. However, that only applies to the existing tobacco businesses at the time that law was passed. So if those hookah bars close, that's right. Oh, and they so have they to maintain those revenue in. levels is how I understand Understood. it. Okay. I was gonna. I was gonna say we just need a stronger <laughs> yep. lobby. Then it's in a the really tricky. Uh, it's this is a really tricky privileges. issue to navigate the laws around because, like I said, we have state law that we need to change to really achieve true on-site consumption, which I'm personally uh, in favor of. After doing all this research, I think that's the best way to go. Um, I think BYOB 
also brings concerns in addition to bringing your own cannabis. Um, so I just believe the regulations will pay off. And as a city, though, we're trying to respond to this club that already opened in our city and just get the best rules in place for a BYOB. And then in the future, I hope to, to work with Denver and to push the state to move in a more regulated direction of regulating true on-site consumption. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, and, and we've already touched on this a tiny bit, but I, I would like to dive in a little bit more as to why social use is so important and, and why this is something worth working on. And so maybe starting with you, Brandon, if um, was it the, the fact that there were already these clubs that were operating and the the kind of want or need to regulate them on the behalf, on the behalf of the government of wanting to make sure it's being done right. And that's why it was originally done. It was it more of just a, you know, a, uh, a human rights issue is, uh, you know, basically we should be able to do this because it isn't harming one, anyone or what was kind of the driving factor for, uh, for including that. So every uh, amendment that I brought to the table uh, during the regulations process has, has been um, based on public comment. And uh, it's easy to do that being part of the cannabis community. Um, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's been a few disagreements here and there, but for the most part, I, I think most cannabis consumers just want to be treated like normal people. We want to be afforded mm-hmm. all the same rights that any other law-abiding citizen is. And I, I think that if we're going to legalize cannabis, we, we need to be honest with ourselves. You know, it's, um, it's an objectively safer substance um, we, we won uh, a campaign that, that was labeled a campaign to regulate marijuana like alcohol. Uh, I think that's what even people who don't smoke that voted yes for it thought we were getting. And mm-hmm. I think that's what, what people should get. And so if we have this substance, alcohol, that's incredibly dangerous, but people can use responsibly and use in a social setting responsibly, there is no solid argument to say that the safer substance, cannabis, shouldn't be able to be consumed in the exact same manner by the exact same persons as alcohol. And therefore, we need to have legal um, public consumption venues. I think it's I think it's important to note, too, at this point that um, prior to legalization, Alaska did have a medical marijuana uh, law. But Alaska was the only st- is is the only state still in which the right to possess cannabis is constitutionally enshrined. Um, that was read into their constitution under the right to privacy back in 1998. Um, and I think that there's been a very strong culture um, around cannabis use in Alaska since then. Um, that Alaskans were very protective of the rights that they felt they already had based on um, their individual right to privacy and of possessing cannabis. Um, I suppose the only state that had that without a marijuana-specific amendment, right? Because now in Colorado, it's technically constitutionally protected with Amendment 64. Yeah, so this was read into the law by a judge during a court case. Alaskans have traditionally consumed cannabis at at a a higher rate than uh, other Americans. Um, you know, more Alaskans will admit to the government over the phone that they consume cannabis than any other state. Um, we're, uh, we're very adventurous people. Um, we love America. <laughs> You're harder to find too. If they Everyone lives in the woods, mm-hmm. um, and and you know, there's there's a lot of people up here that that 
um, have grown up consuming <laughs> cannabis. And uh, even aside from the cannabis issue, um, a lot of people move to Alaska because they, they, they don't want to, um, they don't want to be infringed upon by the federal government. It's kind of a, you know, uh, it's, it's a uh, don't tread on me meets the wild west kind of a, a mentality mm -hmm. up here. You know, most Alaskans are pretty friendly, um, but you know, for the most part we want to be left alone. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that translates into, into cannabis uh, possession and use. And so it's, you know, everyone that's grown up here just knows that um, it would be wrong for the police to come to your house and look for you just because you might have some weed. That's absurd. Mm -hmm. And so even after the Marijuana Criminalization Act right. in 1990, like during the heart of the drug war, we got rolled into it a little bit. Um, and there were people who were busted on the streets with cannabis or with it in their cars all the way up until... Um, the campaign to regulate marijuana like alcohol, mm -hmm. um, unless there was proof that you had more than 24 plants or a quarter pound in your house, the, the police couldn't come and, and specifically for that. If they found it while we're there for something else, they could take it, but mm -hmm. um, they weren't investigating, you know, small growers just to bust them. Um, and, mm -hmm. and so that's, that's uh, one of the reasons why I, I think cannabis use is so accepted here on on a personal level. You know, there's quite a bit of debate whether we should actually legalize it and commercialize it or not. You know, the vote was somewhat close, but mm -hmm. I don't think in most people's minds there's any debate as to whether someone should have the right to possess it in their home or not. Um. And so I know that tourism is also a huge part of Alaska's economy, and um, I'm sure a lot of people are hoping that this new, uh, that your marijuana laws will attract even more tourists to the state, but also having to deal with a lot of people from out of state who may not have used marijuana ever before. And so pivoting to Emmett, um, where in Colorado, um, we you've already experienced a, a surge in tourism and ha had to go through the growing pains of having some of those tourists unaccustomed to cannabis use. Do you see a place for social use um, in educating these people? A lot of it's from tourists. We see that just in the dispensaries, obviously. But um, when I talked to the club in Inglewood, they said uh, a very high number of their visitors are tourists. Um, but in addition to that, uh, and I'd like to keep talking about that, but I would mention also that we have a lot of our senior citizens uh, that are here who live in multi-housing facilities and they have very strict anti-drug policies in those facilities. And a lot of those folks uh, were very excited mm. after legalization that they could try cannabis again, or maybe for the first time and use it to treat um, arthritis or whatever issue it is they're dealing with. Um, but they live somewhere where it's very difficult um, or at minimum, they would at least just like to do it with someone else who can provide advice. Um, and that's where it touches back to tourists. Um, everyone who's looking for this social environment um, has a different reason. I think more experienced users just want the, um, the enjoyment of being with like-minded people. But there's a legitimate need by tourists and senior citizens who want to be around other people, not just for the enjoyment, but for the advice and just kind of for that that guidance um, and that's really important with edibles um, I'm really pushing the club in Inglewood to adopt the first time five campaign and put up some signs and really make educational materials available 
What um, is, I believe what is the, the website is firsttime5 with the number 5.org. Um, it was started by the Council on Responsible Cannabis Regulations, which is encouraging cannabis consumers or new consumers to start with five milligrams or less per serving for an edible and to wait 30 minutes before consuming another serving just to feel those effects and see really how strong of uh, an edible you would like. I, I know there has been situations and there's still concerns about folks who have not used cannabis before visiting Colorado, grabbing a hundred milligram chocolate bar, <laughs> eating the mm -hmm. whole thing, getting awfully sick and- Or being doubt um, in it. <laughs> and, yeah, and exactly, <laughs> writing an article about it. Yeah, so, you know, there could be some serious consequences and I feel bad for those folks. So I... Which of course, doing something like that would be just as dangerous exactly. as doing like five shots of vodka on your first time having alcohol. Like, of course you're gonna get sick mm -hmm. if, you're do if you're taking too yep. high of a dose. Yep. Um, this is really so a matter of bringing it out um, and not into the open literally in, in front of the whole world, but even in a post-legalization world here in Colorado, cannabis users are still being marginalized. And that's where social use has a big part of this to play because we need to give cannabis consumers a place to gather and to do it safely and answer those questions and, and that sort of thing. So did that answer your question, Rochelle? Mm -hmm. I tend to rant and change subjects mm -hmm. on yeah, my own. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Totally. No, that was that was perfect. Um, bringing in other types of non-tourist mm -hmm. new users also. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on on the, um, the the tourism issue, that that has actually been one of um, our most successful arguments here, uh, both during mm -hmm. the, the campaign. Mm -hmm. And now on the the board, when we're we're talking about these, um, you know, consumption facilities, is that uh, you know Alaska has has relied on oil revenue for a long time, and uh, with the low oil production that we're experiencing here in the state, um, compounded by the low oil prices, we're we're in a, a budget deficit. It doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon, and. Um, you know, I'm not trying to convince anybody that marijuana revenues are going to replace oil revenues because they're, they're just not. But a drop in the bucket is better than a drop out. And, and we market ourselves as a tourist state. I think that Alaska is, uh, you know, competes um, every year for, for the top destination with uh, Las Vegas for uh, American tourists. So, yeah, we get anywhere oh, between wow. two and four no million idea. tourists a year. Um, about a million of those come to my town uh, throughout the summer. So we have a town of about 80,000 uh, 80, people. And in the summer, um, it's about a, a million and 80,000 people. So just going through on the buses constantly, checking oh, out wow. our downtown area, taking fishing trips, hunting trips, that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. And uh, so why not people are, are looking to have a good time when they're on their vacation we know 11 percent of americans no matter what walk of life you're from consume cannabis in, in some form and uh we're regulating it like alcohol so why not let's uh you know let's let's bring in those tourist dollars that might be the little extra push someone needs like oh, i've always thought about going to alaska and i've always thought about going to amsterdam oh wow i can do both so um, and that's people that have been on the fence when we when might have actually... to compete with you, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it on, bro. Start the tourism <laughs> war. <laughs> yeah, um, that'd be that'd be great. I'll come down and see you guys. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Yeah, so so when you, you talk to people that are even on the fence, like other regulators, other than the staunch prohibitionists who are um, frustrating to work with at best, uh, the, the people who um, are, aren't quite convinced, they actually they, they see the, um, the possibility for revenue uh, to be used in other areas, and it, it really... Um, you know, it, it really helps the, the argument. Some people say, you know, I don't really like cannabis, um, but I see that we can we can bring in more revenue for our state and for mm-hmm. our local government with this. And so, okay, I'll, I'll vote with you on this one. All right. Um, so I just want to play devil's advocate here for a minute um, about some assumptions that we've made in discussing uh, social use that I'm not entirely sure I agree with, um, which is that why shouldn't cannabis consumers be allowed to walk down the street um, smoking a joint and literally using um, cannabis in public just the way people who smoke tobacco uh, can do so as well, as long as they're safe, at least here in Colorado, as long as they're a certain distance away from businesses or storefronts. Um, You can go to the park and smoke a cigarette. You can walk down the street and wave your cigarette in my face. Why can't cannabis consumers have those same rights? Personally, I think it should be up to the, the local community to decide and see how they choose to balance um, public safety uh, with with recreation. You know, so it like a, a city like Las Vegas, you can you know walk down the street, getting absolutely tanked, having a great time. They uh, you know they not only allow it but they promote it, and so for that particular city, it's um it's it's worthwhile for them to you know the the potential extra public safety risk of having intoxicated people walking up and down the street um is uh outweighed by the benefit that they receive from people recreating in that area and and so i think that's that's the real issue um and another thing is that a lot of people they that are opposed to to open consumption of cannabis they actually think that it gets you just as high as alcohol or even heroin does, and, and they're afraid of people like stumbling into the streets or offering it to kids, that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it should really be left up to the local governments to decide um, what what sort of, of consumption they want to have. And you know, personally, I'm I'm in support of it. Um, I think you know it's the job of the parent to to watch out for kids, not the job of the state. Um, some might disagree with me, but that's uh, that's my position. I think the short answer is that what we passed in Colorado is to regulate marijuana like alcohol. And obviously there's a lot of areas where we can point out that we're not doing that and we're still working on that. But in retrospect, we're not allowing open container down South Broadway Street in Denver or anywhere that I can think of in Colorado. So while we can compare it to tobacco, what we passed really compares it to alcohol. And so living with that in Colorado, we can't allow out on the sidewalk because that's just not what the voters approved, and I don't think they would. Personally, uh, I'm with you in spirit. I think actually the way to uh, the way mm-hmm. I would like to talk about this is like with special events because everyone knows on April 20th, Civic mm-hmm. Center Park in downtown mm-hmm. Denver is full of thousands of people smoking marijuana openly and publicly, um, but there's not much we can do about that and. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the city has made some progress on working with those activists to do things like park cleanup efforts and things like that. I would be open to special event permits so that way um, maybe you mm-hmm. could smoke outdoors on mm-hmm. April 20th or like Oktoberfest that closes down a couple blocks 
um, where people drink out in the streets and the brewers sell their beer right on the street. So we should do something like that similar with cannabis. Um, that's just my two cents on that aspect of it. So that's another example of regulating rather than prohibiting being a better way to deal with a problem if people are going to do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And that all sounds great. And thank you for those answers. And we are coming up on time, but I do have just one last question because I want to make sure that we are addressing that, hey, maybe even though social use, I definitely agree with you, is a much better situation than not allowing it. Uh, it may have a couple of, uh, of risks or downsides that might be valid that we need to work to mitigate. So I wonder, uh, my first question being, do you think that any of the fears of, uh, say, opponents of social use are valid in any way about um, some of the risks that could come with it? And, and how could we uh, try to make sure that we, we stay st- a couple steps ahead of that and, you know, mitigating the harms of those. Uh, for, for example, just if people are able to consume on premises and then drive home after, how do we make sure that they're not impaired uh, issues with secondhand smoke, say that sort of thing or anyone else, anything else that you could think of that came up during these debates? So uh, that that is one of the questions that was was raised um, by our opposition and, and you know by some of the other board members who have disagreed with me on the issue is that it's going to create a, a greater public safety risk um, that there's going to be more impaired driving that these clubs or these recreational facilities are, are going to attract a uh, less desirable element of our society and um, I'd say look at the statistics and to see that they've been proven wrong. Um, the one unregulated club that's been so popular in the, the media here in Alaska is um, in downtown Anchorage. And uh, that place has not um, had to have the police come down there. The ambulance hasn't had to come there and, and scrape people off the sidewalk. Uh, I'm, I'm sure the police were uh, looking for cannabis DUI right when they first started up they found out it's just it's just a, a, a waste of money to target the place and uh, so even though the city of Anchorage isn't friendly to the marijuana industry overall um, they haven't decided to spend resources to crack down on the club because they just haven't seen the the increase in um, emergency service needs uh, to that area where the club exists yeah and for myself um, I have some personal bias, I would say more in favor of cannabis because of my personal experiences with it as a medicine. But coming to this through the licensing board, I've really challenged myself to sometimes pretend that I'm a prohibitionist or at least mm-hmm. um, at least think about the concerns mm-hmm. of folks who don't use marijuana, don't know much about it. I want to make sure their concerns are addressed as well um, because this is a new thing in the community and that's only fair. So I'm trying to balance um, you know, both sides, the cannabis consumers needs as well as the needs for the whole community. And through that balancing act, um, I've actually come up with kind of a list of concerns. Um, and so I'll just kind of go down that list real quick. And should we mix marijuana and alcohol together? That's kind of an unknown. And that's a question we get a lot. Um, should the clubs have buffers for zoning, that sort of thing, because the neighbor compatibility is the biggest thing with our club in Inglewood. Um, you have a cafe next door where a lot of families dine um, and they have their ambiance. And you may have a cannabis club next door where the members are bringing in five foot bongs in and out through the front door. And there mm-hmm. might just be kind of a neighbor compatibility mm-hmm. issue. And we consider that with liquor licenses as well, where the new liquor license has to literally survey the neighborhood for responses. 
Um, other things such as the employees using cannabis while they're working, that's a concern that's come up with our club. Um, and so we're thinking about putting a rule in place that says your employees cannot be using it because your employees are supervising the environment. Um, and then of course, indoor smoking, I've talked about that. Um, we think it should be 21 plus. And, um, you know, as far as other downsides, um, you know, uh, flame torches, the butane torches have come up in conversation uh, with the use of those, if there's carpet and that sort of thing. We need to make sure these places, even though they're private clubs, they should still be following the regular fire codes and electrical codes and things like that for life safety. Um, so I think there's valid concerns out there and we try to think about those. So thank you so much for all of those answers. This has been such an illuminating conversation and something that I really hope uh, we start seeing all over the country now. Because, I mean, here in Massachusetts, where I'm located, we actually have a provision allowing for uh, limited social use inside our initiative that's going to be on the ballot in 2016. So it's really great to, to see both Colorado and Alaska uh, really getting the ball rolling with this and hopefully other states will be following. Um, and so just to wrap things up, we always end our discussions with a call to action. Uh, since educating people like we did this during this discussion is really fun, uh, but it can be kind of useless if they're not actually then using that knowledge to improve communities, uh, pass laws, and make other positive changes. So if you could have our, our listeners do something right now, uh, what would you ask them to do? So that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's really um, a good point. So what I would ask the listeners to do is contact uh, their, their local grassroots organizations that are, that are pushing um, for the rights of cannabis consumers to get active, to go out there, to uh, find out who their, their community council members are, who, who the, the, uh, the elders and those individuals who are, are making decisions in their local government are. Go and talk to those people, have one-on-one -on -one discussions, you know, try to convince them positively uh, to be on our side uh, and, and to really keep the, the momentum rolling organically because when it comes time to uh, have these debates on the state level, uh, the more local leaders that you've convinced that the cannabis community is responsible, um, the, the less resistance we will get and uh, you know, ultimately the, the more support, the more media coverage that you're going to receive. If those individuals who are essentially, you know, running the show in your community, um, even if they're not completely in favor of you, that they respect you. Um, in a personal matter, I think the call to action is really, um, you know, have an open conversation with your friends and family about cannabis use. Um, that's really the nexus of this is uh, cannabis users still being oppressed, still being uh, underground to a degree, even in Colorado where it's legal. So we're trying to really build that bridge between the mainstream and the cannabis community and have a have a proper integration. Uh, my call to action would be talk to your local officials about this issue before it's too late. Sometimes you'll see cities and counties banning clubs before they've even had a chance to debate it. So we need to get the education out there sooner rather than later. Um, and if I can just throw a tidbit out there for some free advertising, um, I recently started a website which is socialuse.org and I've been talking to folks about trying to uh, form kind of an ongoing discussion because uh, we're learning this. Uh, this is a brand new thing in Colorado and so we want to try to help other cities and states prevent some of the headaches that we've had and just try to be an information sharing center. So I encourage folks to check that out as it evolves in the future. 
feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions about what we're doing in Inglewood, Colorado. I hope that we'll pass our ordinance in the next month. We're very close to finalizing the language. And also the Colorado legislature will be convening this week. And we have a lot of work to do here. So if you're listening in Colorado, um, please get in contact with the advocacy organizations or the Denver Social Use Campaign or contact myself in Inglewood. We really need to get organized and rally behind some changes in statewide legislation here. All right, thank you both for coming on. This has been Brandon Emmett from the Alaska Marijuana Control Board and Emmett Reichstoffer with um, Englewood Liquor and Medical Marijuana Thank Licensing you so much, Authority. this was great. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Sam. Awesome. Thanks for listening to episode 28 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Rochelle Young and me, Sam Tracy. The show is produced by Tyler Williams and our engagement director is Sarah Merrigan. We'd also like to thank Emmett Reistroffer and Brandon Emmett once again for speaking with us about regulating social marijuana use. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or you can also email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more info about the show, links to our guests and news stories, and so much more. So please remember to stay sensible, and we'll see you next week. Our outro song this week is I'm on a roller coaster that only goes up, kid, by America the Robot. Enjoy. And providers, not their parents, who's mostly something missing, friends, but got an ugly type of creature. When the nest it catches fire, put the masses in the pyres. I hope your offspring is the main feature. With a part of gold mine.